All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together today. How we love the Lord's Day. How we love to think on our Savior Jesus Christ and to leave the distractions of this world behind for a time. To sing your praises, to gather together, to see the the shining faces of those who have been saved by the grace of Christ. How we love to sing to you and to hear your word and to fellowship together, to proclaim the gospel together, to have our courage bolstered, to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and friends and family, and to trust you, Lord, that your spirit is among us today. Thank you for the time that we had this morning to kind of get our hearts warmed up, our, our heads in the right space, so to speak, to to be worshipers of you, to be cleaned of the the dirt of this world by focusing our minds exclusively on our God. Lord, let this be a day where our meditations, our hopes, our dreams are all centered on you. Would you sanctify us? Would you make us more like our Savior? That by the end of this Lord's Day, each of us is walking in the manner worthy of the gospel with just a little bit more effectiveness. That's our prayer, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to continue today. uh, Module 6, Session 1. I know these are long titles, but I'm known for those. Eschatology 1, Views of Eschatology and Premillennialism. I I guess I'm a Puritan at heart. Uh, Puritans, when they wrote books, didn't have reviewers, and they didn't have um, an Amazon paragraph, and so their titles were really, really long. Uh, it was, you know, a title like A Study of Jesus Christ, colon, all the things that Jesus did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, etc., etc. And so um, that's, that's kind of how we roll here, I guess. So we're going to continue today by looking at premillennialism. We, we did some postmillennialism and amillennialism stuff before, uh, la- last week rather. And I want to just kind of pick up where we left off last week with just a couple of comments um, <clears throat> before we just get into the particulars of premillennialism. Last week we had some questions uh, from a couple of you on a couple of passages that we would consider uh, probably the less clear of of the eight to nine hundred passages in the New Testament that speak to a millennium. Um, and I, I didn't think of this last time, and I'm disappointed in myself, but I want to address it right now for a moment. That when you're looking at a theological viewpoint, when you're looking at how to understand something from Scripture, uh, trying to analyze the least clear of a certain uh, least clear verse uh, that seems to support a certain view or another is not a super fruitful exercise. Um, Bible verses are on a spectrum from on one end completely utterly black and white, totally clear to the other end of the spectrum uh, that are very unclear. Uh, there's a verse in Jeremiah 31 that this particular week I had the opportunity to read 15 commentators on this one verse, one little phrase. You know what every one of them said? They said, no way on planet Earth we're going to understand this. It's just an interesting phrase. It's a phrase that says something like um, that in the future a woman will encircle a man. And nobody touches it with a 10-foot pole. And, and I'm going to the smartest men I know. Well, surely Dr. So-and-so knows this. And he writes, not touching with 10-foot pole. Okay. <laughs> so that's not the verse you go to to try to prove a theological point. Um, the, one of the 
basic foundational bedrock principles of interpreting the Bible is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and the clearer passages always interpret the less clear passages. Um, For example, didactic teaching in the epistles in the New Testament always help us interpret um, the Gospels. They always help us interpret uh, truths that are placed in the context of narratives or even in poetry. And so... I, I think that's that's important. That when you get to a passage, and we looked at something in Mark uh, twenty-four and then in, or uh, Matthew twenty-four and then Mark nine um, that seem to be when it comes to postmillennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism that seems to be a little bit iffy and seems to maybe even slightly point toward amillennialism, you have to look at the whole of Scripture. And you interpret the less clear passages with the most clear passages. And so that's, a, that's just a, a really good principle. And when it comes to um, the concept of a millennium, you cannot pick one or two favorite verses and say, see, that proves my point. Um, You can't do it. And and I I would say on the other side, too, to be as intellectually fair as we can, um, I've sort of lost track of the number of amillennial authors I've read who basically take the view that the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ is only referenced in Revelation 20. And that us, uh, we who are premillennials, premillennialists here, Uh, who believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ yet to come, that we're taking one passage and basing everything on that. You know, I haven't found a single premillennial writer or scholar who bases the entire theology on that. So what that is, is actual, uh, and and I'm not trying to be harsh, but that's intellectual dishonesty. That's just a flat-out lie. Um, That's not reading... Sources of your critics, which is a, a basic academic premise that you, you don't read all the people who agree with you who are disagreeing with the part that you disagree with and then quote all of them. That doesn't prove anything. You need to cite uh, the, the people who actually disagree with you and go to them and be honest about where they are. And I have found in my reading on amillennialism, there is not a lot of intellectual honesty. And it's a little bit discouraging and frustrating. Um, and, and the reason is, is because when you start to get into the, um, into the depths of the hermeneutics of each system, amillennialism versus premillennialism, you can't, hold a, a, you can't hold a candle to what premillennial writers have done. Uh, for example, I've probably read somewhere in the vicinity of 100... Uh, scholarly articles, journal articles, peer-reviewed articles um, by by men with PhDs on amillennialism. I've probably read two or three hundred um, in those who defend premillennialism. I'm in the middle. I have three notebooks right now I'm reading through um, in preparation for our series on the millennium I'm starting next year. And I got to say from that survey, and I know it's just my perspective, but I, I, I've read thousands of pages of these men. The hermeneutics of the amillennial authors don't hold a candle to the hermeneutics of the premillennial authors. And, and they, the amillennial authors tend to fall back on a theological system of saying, well, this is what the reformers believed, or this one particular verse seems to point toward a kingdom on earth right now, or, uh, or that we don't believe in the rapture, or, or whatever. Um, as far as just actual depth of hermeneutics, of objectively proving a point from Scripture, 
my my experience has been that the premillennialist authors um, tend to be deeper, tend to be more detailed, and tend to be have more airtight arguments. And so that's that in and of itself proves nothing. That's just been my experience. But I think the interaction between the two is important. And and I'm happy to interact with with amillennialists because I think I can read from Genesis to Revelation a consistent hermeneutic that shows that Christ will return. Um, I, I just read an article this morning, in fact, by Dr. Greg Harris, one of my professors, and he he gives five reasons just from the book of Revelation alone why premillennialism is the only possible option. This is a 35-page article, incredibly deep in its hermeneutics, and it is airtight. That alone should convince anybody that that's, that, that's just something I wanted to say, that the, the hermeneutics of premillennialism is consistent that, that we're consistent with how we interpret Revelation, how we interpret Isaiah, how we interpret Matthew, how we interpret Genesis. The rules are the same. And so that's pretty important. Um, I will also say this, and, and just as a reminder, almost without exception, our amillennial brothers uh, have been the greatest proponents and defenders of the gospel um, in church history. And, and that is always important to acknowledge. I, I think that um, in our camp sometimes in dispensationalism, I think sometimes the gospel has been de-emphasized a little bit. And I, I'm disappointed in that. There's a resurgence of that now. Um, I, I think some some key men like uh, John Piper and John MacArthur and uh, R.C. Sproul and seeing how they interact have interacted together. R.C.'s home in heaven now. Remember we said last week he's a dispensationalist now. But um, how they've interacted with, with being about the gospel first. But our amillennial brothers, um, th- there's no such thing as a seeker-sensitive covenant theology church. There are a lot of formerly good dispensational churches that have just gone off the rails. And I, I think that it behooves us to take a page from their playbook on emphasizing the gospel. I want to say one other thing, and then we'll get into actual uh, stuff here this morning, our, our, our actual content. Um, amillennialism is the, one of the foundational bedrocks, uh, bedrock beliefs of basically every reformer. Um, John Calvin and Beza and, and all those guys, they're almost all amillennial. And so I actually, I have a lot of compassion for and I have a lot of understanding for anyone who is hesitant to disagree with almost every reformer. Um, those are brilliant men. There, there, there hasn't been a John Calvin since uh, John Calvin. There hasn't been um, a Theodore Beza since Beza. Th- these are brilliant men and they are amillennial. Well, they used to be amillennial. They're all premillennial now. But um, So I understand that. I get that. I, I think the argument, uh, oh, so you think you're right and all the reformers are wrong. I'm hesitant to even answer that because that sounds dumb to Steve and even say it out loud. And, and I totally get that. Um, when I was doing my, my uh, doctoral dissertation, my advisor, I had lunch with him, and I said, you remember that in Chapter 2, I'm disagreeing with the president of our institution, Dr. MacArthur, and, he, and I said, is that going to be a problem? Like, is he going to not give me my diploma when we get there? And he's like, no, first, he's not going to read it, and he'll never know. Um, and, and second, if you prove your point, then prove your point. And so... Um, it's okay to disagree. We do so agreeably, as one of my professors used to say. Um, but I, I think we always want to keep clear, our amillennial brothers are not an enemy. We're, we're seeking, though, as truth. 
And that truth impacts how we live. And if you view the world through the lens of amillennialism, you live differently than if you view the world through the lens of premillennialism. Um, I think amillennialism and postmillennialism has now given rise to this horrible trend that's just going through the roof of Christian nationalism. That basically the church exists to promote the so-called Christian nation that we're in. We have never been a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. A Christian nation, by definition, is a nation in which everybody in it is saved. That's a Christian nation. There will be that one time in all of history, at the very beginning of the millennial kingdom of Christ, when all the the unsaved have been judged and killed and executed for a moment. Every nation on earth will be Christian nations. Until somebody has a baby. And then somebody else has more babies. And those little babies start to rebel. And a thousand years later, you see an attack on Jesus Christ himself in the city of Jerusalem based on rebellion because sin is still prevalent. So, um, just wanted to give you some of those comments there. And um, hopefully that's a little bit helpful to you. But I do want to talk about premillennialism. And this is not just... Somebody said... uh, It's been said, rather, by numbers of people, well... Eschatology is kind of a side issue. It's kind of a it's kind of a peripheral issue. I, I would agree that it's not a salvation issue. I would disagree that it's peripheral. One third of our Bible is concerned with this. So you think about how thick your Bible is. You rip a third of it out. That's what you would have to do to say this is actually um, peripheral. Uh, and given the fact that the very first mention of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the context of a prophecy in Genesis three fifteen, that means prophecy and end times uh, are important. So let's look at premillennialism. We'll just kind of take a broad overview here. There we are. Basically, premillennialism says that the second coming of Christ will occur before the establishment of the millennium. Um, millennium is just a Latin word for one thousand years. So um, that's what it, that's what it believes that the second coming will occur before the establishment of the millennium. That means Christ is on the earth. So I just put a list of the basic beliefs here. That in the end times, there will be a seven-year tribulation period. Antichrist will emerge during this time. Revelation 6, Daniel chapter 9. God will pour out his wrath upon the world. One of the reasons that we are pre, uh, pre-rapture or pre-tribulational rapture people is because God pours out his wrath on the world. We don't believe he ever pours his wrath out on the church because the, the Christ took the wrath of God for the church. There is the issue of well, what about all the people who get saved and are stuck on the earth um, during that time. That's a different issue and one that God is very capable of dealing with. At the end, number three, at uh, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will return visibly and bodily to earth to defeat Satan, to defeat Antichrist. He will establish his kingdom on the earth. At this time, those who died earlier as believers in the tribulation will receive glorified bodies and reign with Christ. So there's two different sets of resurrections. We see that in Revelation 2 as well. Those believers who survive the tribulation will also reign with Christ. And those are the ones, by the way, who are going to repopulate the earth. The, the non uh, glorified survivors who are believers um, after the tribulation. During this time period, Satan will be bound and thrown into a pit. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released and will orchestrate the final rebellion against God. Satan will be defeated and sent permanently to the lake of fire. Now, let's go back to that number seven one. 
Oh, I don't have them, I don't have them numbered up there. About Satan being bound. I read these to you last time. But one of the, one of the core beliefs of amillennialism um, in their attempt to deal with Revelation 20 is to believe that Satan is bound currently. That currently in this time. And since anybody with a brain can see that there's still evil in the world, the way they define it is that Satan is bound in that the gospel is going freely to all the nations. Um, and I sort, of, I sort of understand that. I don't think that the gospel is going freely to all the nations. Um, there are plenty of parachurch organizations that would say, no, it's not. There, there are lots of problems happening now. But just as a reminder, if anybody says, well, Satan's present work is restricted... 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, during this current time, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. 1 Peter 5.8, during this current time, believers are to be watchful and sober-minded because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. During this present time, Peter told Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul said we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. 1 John 5.19, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That one's a little bit hard to push back on because the whole world means all the nations as well. So um, I I think trying to prove that Satan is bound right now is that's really tough. Um, That's that's like trying to prove to somebody that they can breathe water. It's not going to it's not going to go very far. Second part of this. Most premillennialists view the millennial kingdom as covering a literal thousand years. And we'll talk about why we believe that in, in, the, in the moment. And by the way, if Christ is reigning and we get to year 1001 and everybody goes, ha, he's reigning on earth in a time of total peace and prosperity for longer than a thousand years. Nobody's disappointed. So at, at that point, it doesn't matter, right? But some do view the thousand years of Revelation 21 through 6, it's mentioned six times, by the way, as representative of just a long period of time. But what we agree on, though, is that the millennium is an intermediate kingdom that gives way to the eternal kingdom or the eternal state. And that's the final destination. That's our final stop for all believers. Then one more little piece here is that unlike other views of the millennium, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and so forth, premillennialism views the millennium of Revelation 21 through 6 as fulfilled in the future. That's the major difference. Postmillennialism uh, says the millennium's happening now. We're going to bring the kingdom in. Thus, Christian nationalism is happening. That's blowing up on social media everywhere. Amillennialism says there isn't really a kingdom, but Christ is reigning now, and we're sort of in the kingdom now. It's a little bit amorphous and a lot of disagreement even among them. The other two perspectives view the millennium as somehow in some way being in operation right now. And um, I, I, I appreciate a desire to see the kingdom of God on earth now. Our view is that the job of the church is to bring in kingdom citizens, not to bring in the kingdom. And why would we say this? Well, just one little reason. Um, Jesus said to pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed is your name. What's the next prayer? Okay. Your kingdom come. Who's he asking to do that? God the Father, not us. We don't bring the kingdom in. So what are some biblical supports for premillennialism? And this is just a, a broad overview. First of all, premillennialism has no trouble with any passage of Scripture. There is not a single verse in the Bible that is just absolutely... Uh, 
uninterpretable, if I can use that word, um, in line with premillennialism. And that's, that's not just the opinion of premillennialists, by the way. Um, there, are, there are non-premillennialists who admit this, who say, yeah, it, it does fit the whole story of Scripture the best. Premillennialism is based on a literal and chronological reading of the book of Revelation. Revelation 19, the return of Jesus Christ to defeat his enemies. Revelation 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Revelation 21 and 22, new heavens and new earth that begin shortly after the millennium. So, if you, if you read it literally and chronologically, you have the millennial kingdom coming after the present age, but before the eternal state. And, and just to be really clear... You have to demonstrate from Scripture that you should not take it chronologically. Now, that is possible. I showed you when we were going through Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Ezra chapter 4 contains a couple of verses that are clearly and provably um, a fast forward into the future by decades. And we can show that from other parts of Scripture. And that's for a, a literary purpose to paint a big picture of the troubles happening to Ezra during that time. Uh, you can go to the book of Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, it becomes very clear it's not meant to be a story from A to Z. It's meant to record various prophecies, various events, and it doesn't read like a story. It skips around, and, and so that's very clear. But scripture has to tell you that that's what's happening. You can't just decide, well, this isn't chronological. What does that prove? All it proves is that you just said, well, this isn't chronological. That's the only thing it proves. Unless scripture gives you a reason for it, we always assume chronology. Right? We always assume that. We assume that when Genesis 1 speaks of a day, ask any second grader, how long is a day? And they'll say it's from the time the sun comes up to the time the sun goes down. Or, or they'll say 24 hours if they're really sophisticated in second grade. Nobody reads day like millions of years. The text has to tell you. And so that's one of our, our hermeneutic principles. That if, if a chronological reading is logical and not contradicted, then that's what we take. A chronological reading. Especially when you have things like, then this happened. After that, this happened. The Bible's very clear about chronology. Revelation 20 is the only passage in the Bible that explicitly mentions a thousand year reign of Christ before the eternal kingdom. And that's the big aha of our amillennial brothers. See, there's only one passage. Well, it's only partly true. There's only one passage that gives the actual time period of a thousand years, but it gives it six times, and that's, that's pretty clear. But it is not the only passage that speaks of an eternal kingdom. And I'm not just talking about the fact that there are other passages that speak of an eternal kingdom. There are theological principles. There are things that must happen that must be true only in the context of a millennium. And I'll give you one example here in just a minute. But let's go through some of the, just a few of the more explicit passages. Isaiah 65, 20. Basically, it says this. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days, and an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. This passage speaks of longevity of life that is not true in this current age at all. It mentions the presence of death. That cannot be the case in the millennial king, in the in the final kingdom. That can't be true in the eternal kingdom. It says that a man who dies at a hundred years old is a sinner who's cursed by God. 
that, uh, that, you know, you think about 1 Corinthians 11, where God is killing people in the church who, who are um, in unrepentant sin. That's another issue for another day. In this particular context, when somebody dies at the age of 100, their whole family and their friends say, oh, what a shame he was taken from us so soon. That's not happening today at all. Zechariah 14 5 through 17 supports premillennialism. The Lord is said to be king over all the earth, but there's still disobedience, there's still rebellion on the part of some of the nations. Not all of the nations. How many nations are disobedient to the Lord today? All of them, right? Across the board. Zechariah 14 presents a few nations being disobedient to the Lord, and the Lord said he won't send any rain on them until they are obedient. That's an intermediate kingdom. Isaiah 11, 6-11. This passage speaks of incredible changes in nature that far transcend the present age. It also speaks, though, of evangelizing all the nations. That can't be happening um, in the final state because everybody's saved. In the millennial kingdom, remember, survivors from the Great Tribulation will start to have babies. These will be unsaved people. And they'll repopulate the earth and they'll need to be evangelized. You can't prove it from scripture, but there is some logical reason to believe that the actual greatest time of evangelization, evangelization that will happen in the history of all of humanity will actually be during the millennial kingdom. That the church age is really good. The tribulation period will be even better because God's going to loose 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are protected and spreading the gospel. The millennial kingdom, the gospel is spread while Christ is reigning on the earth. There there won't be any countries shut down to the gospel. There won't be any, um, it'll be a Christianized society in that that the Christians are running everything and yet the unbelievers are, are hearing the gospel from everywhere. So logically speaking, we could at least in dotted lines make the case that more people will come to faith during the millennium than ever have in all of history prior to that. And doesn't that make sense in the way the Lord works? I, I think we could make that case. I won't go to the stake over it, but it, it makes sense to me. Isaiah 11 is the passage that talks about the lion laying down with the lamb. Changes in nature. Boy, you read all millennial writers on that. The, the plethora of, of reinterpreting what that really means um, is just out the window. Well, the lambs are the, the people of God and the lions are the people who used to persecute them, but now they're all friends. You can't just say, I have a lot of degrees from a theological institute, therefore whatever I say is true. The Bible has to say that. When the Bible says that a, that, that a, a baby, a toddler, will stick his hand in the hole of a snake and, and be fine, what does that mean? It means that animals aren't going to be after us anymore. Won't that be nice? That'll be, I know we don't live in fear of, of rhinoceroses. Is that the plural? But they uh, kill more people than any other animal every year. That won't happen anymore. How about Psalm 72? 8 through 14, this one is tough to explain away. Psalm 72, 8 through 14 speaks of a universal reign of Messiah in which all the kings of the earth will serve him. Aha, that's the final state, right? But it also tells of the weak and the needy who need to be delivered from need and death. That can't be happening in the final state. Messiah reigning on the earth over all the nations and yet people still in need. People that he's ministering to. So that must be something intermediate. There's a strong emphasis on the 
in the New Testament that the Davidic kingdom reign is future, not present. That's our next little point here. Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly, and as he's speaking to the apostles, truly I say to you, in the new world. Okay, let me stop on that phrase. New world doesn't mean what we're in now. The new world didn't happen at Pentecost. The world stayed exactly the same, except they were popula- be- becoming populated with Christians. That's not the new world. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, that's not happening yet. Now, some would argue, well, he's on the throne of David today. Even progressive dispensationalists argue for this. He's on the throne of David today. Um, Throne of David is not in heaven. It never has been. It never will be. The throne of David has always been on earth. It's always been in what city? In Jerusalem. It always has been. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is the Davidic kingdom being future. It's not happening now. And I, I'd list also for you Matthew 25, 31, Acts 1, 6. Acts 1, 6 is when the, the disciples, they have one last shot, one last question they have for the Savior before he ascends into heaven. And he said, they ask, is it at this time that you're bringing in the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know. In other words, he didn't say the kingdom's never coming. It's future. And then he goes into heaven. Uh, automatically now the kingdom is future. And then the last little point here. The promise of believers reigning with Christ is proof of premillennialism. That has to be the case. Revelation 21 through 6 promises that believers will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Nowhere, listen carefully, nowhere... Nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament is it stated that Christians are already reigning with Christ. That's not stated anywhere. It is stated that we're slaves of Christ. It is stated that you will be persecuted and killed for your faith all day long. But nowhere is it stated that we're reigning with Christ. That makes Christian nationalism really tough. All for Christians getting into public office, the more the merrier. Um, but we're not going to Christianize our, our, our nation. That's not going to happen. Only the gospel does that. Now let's finish up this morning with just looking at the two forms of premillennialism. I think we'll be done a little bit early. Make up for me keeping you late last time. Two forms of premillennialism. Variations. Dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. The main difference between these two forms is the emphasis each gives to the nation of Israel during the millennium. Dispensational premillennialists, that's us. Well, that's me. I don't know. I can't speak for you. Um, that's me. Uh, the nation Israel will be saved and restored to a place of preeminence in the millennium. Israel will have a special function of service in the millennium that's different from that of the church or save Gentiles. That, that is so prevalent in the Old Testament. It, uh, if somebody said, I'm going to write a book proving that the nation of Israel has no prominence anymore in the coming kingdom. I believe the Israelites will be here, the Israel, the Israel will be here, but they won't have a, a special place. That's an impossible book to write. By the time you get through going to all the passages about how Gentiles, ten of them will grab the hem of the garment of one Jew and say, tell me about the Lord. Um, those are really, really hard to explain away. So dispensational premillennialists, 
nation of Israel as a nation will be saved, restored to be the capital of the millennial kingdom. Most historic premillennialists, on the other hand, hold that the nation of Israel will undergo a national salvation right before the millennium is established, but there's no national restoration. Meaning that in Zechariah 12, I believe it is, when it speaks of a third of all of the Jews being saved, that that's true, that they will be saved, but there's no nation of Israel happening after that. They're just kind of lucky to be in the kingdom at all. No, no national restoration. And so the nation of Israel won't have a special role or function that's distinct from the church. I would urge anybody who believes that to read Ezekiel 40-48. through 48. That makes it really, really difficult to believe that Israel doesn't have a prominent place. Because it tells all about the, the new temple in the millennial kingdom. If if uh, if the Jews and the nation don't have a prominent place, why does why does that passage give the landmarkers that go to every tribe the landmarkers that go to King David? By the way, so it makes it pretty tough. Another difference is that most dispensational premillennialists hold to the literal thousand years. <clears throat> While some historic premillennialists assert that the thousand years is figurative for a long period of time. And that's, I'm not going to go to the stake over that. But I will tell you this. Again, just because you say something is symbolic does not make it so. Where did the idea of the thousand years being symbolic come from? It came from the fact that those who believe that the kingdom is happening now had to make it symbolic because it's been longer than a thousand years since Revelation 20 was written. So you have to make it symbolic. If, however, you do a study of numbers, not the book, but the numbers in the Bible, just two, two facts I want you to kind of grab a hold of. First of all, when a number is symbolic or rounded, it's usually pretty obvious. Um, 185,000 killed by the angel of the Lord uh, in the Old Testament. Was it exactly, if somebody says, oh wait, there was 185,001, God's word is wrong. No, there was 184,999, God's word is wrong. Were there, were there exactly 185,000? Probably not. What, so does that make it symbolic? No, it's a rounded number that says, wow, the angel of the Lord was really mad. Okay? <laughs> and so that, that's what it tells us. Um, when you, when you see obviously rounded numbers, that doesn't make them symbolic. It means that the actual number doesn't make any difference to the truth of the text. Um, when you see, can you think of one number in the book of Revelation that is definitely symbolic? How about 666? Boy, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to, trying to explain that. And, and um, Satanists who come to faith in Christ are having their tattoo of 666 erased um, off. Boy, a lot of ink has been spilled. It, it's, it's a number that has a meaning. And it says it's symbolic. Here's the second fact I want you to get, though. In the book of Revelation, the numbers are tremendously precise. 42 months, 1,260 days. The measurements of New Jerusalem given in Revelation 21 are literally to the inch. Very, very precise. The number of miles in Revelation 9 that blood will be spilled during the Battle of Armageddon is figure, we're able to figure it down to the mile. It's very, very precise. So when you have dozens and dozens of numbers in the book of Revelation that give you no reason not to say they're literal and, and very precise, 
And suddenly you get to the thousand years and you say, ah, that's just figurative. That's okay. Then you have to go back and be consistent because generally speaking, if numbers, if a number is going to be figurative, all the ones all around it are going to be also. So to me, I think the burden of proof is definitely on those who say it's a figurative number. To me, when God said a thousand years, he meant a thousand years. Uh, if it goes to a thousand and one, uh, I don't care. That's fine. Um, I'll, I'll give you one more example. The 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Is that an accurate number? If we want to be really precise, one year of getting to Mount Sinai, another year messing around at Mount Sinai, and then rejecting God and saying we're too scared to go into Canaan, and 38 years of wandering in the wilderness. Were they in the wilderness for 40 years? Yes, they were. So we can, we can break it down, but it's not, it, it wasn't uh, symbolic. It wasn't, well, the 40 years really stands for 4,000, or it really stands for just a really long time. No, it was 40 years with a couple of divisions in it. So the reason I hold to a literal 1,000 years is because that's what Scripture says, and I'm always going to default to that. But you know what? If Christ is reigning on earth for 5,000 years before the, the uh, coming kingdom, uh, the final state, I'm fine with that too. I'm fine with that. One last part. This doesn't prove anything, but I just want to give it to you as a fact. The doctrine of premillennialism has strong support in church history. This was the prevailing millennial view for the first 300 years of church history. That's, that's fairly significant. This was not developed by dispensationalists. This was not invented by John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s. This was not invented by Charles Ryrie at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. This was the view of all of the church fathers, the generation after the apostles. In the early church, premillennialism is well represented. Papias, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Methodius, Lactanius. Now, Papias, let me just stop on him for a minute. He's important. He was premillennial. This is significant. He was taught his eschatology by Polycarp. Polycarp was taught his eschatology by a guy named John who wrote the book of Revelation. That's pretty big. And then a couple of last points here. Through the influence of important church fathers, Eusebius, Augustine, belief in premillennialism, Took a, took a downturn. It waned significantly around the 5th century. Um, there are still theologians today that if Augustine disagrees with it, they disagree with it also. They, they're, they're kind of blind believers in, in Augustine. Augustine was not a perfect man. He was a great theologian, which incidentally both Catholics and Protestants claim is theirs. So he, he had problems. Um, his his anti-Semitism was a huge problem. With some exceptions, most in the Christian church during the medieval and reformation eras held to amillennialism. So from the 5th century on, we have to admit, through the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, um, amillennialism was, that, that was prevalent. That was everywhere. That doesn't change the truth, though. We would also say that from the 5th century to the 15th century for a thousand years, the gospel was barely seen anywhere in the world. That doesn't mean it's, it was not right. Um, so how many people believed it doesn't really prove anything. Just giving you the facts here. The last 150 years have witnessed a strong resurgence in premillennialism. This can be attributed to the rise in popularity of dispensationalism, which affirms the future thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. I, I think one of, the, one of the debts we owe, and ironically they've gone completely off track 
in this day. One of the debts we owe is to Dallas Theological Seminary, um, started by Lewis Berry Schaefer in the early 1920s as a pushback against um, all the denominations in America just going totally liberal and punting the Bible. And for... Um, for decades, uh, for example, Dr. Dwight Pentecost teaching there for six decades, not living six decades, teaching there for six decades, um, just absolute monsters in the field of eschatology. John Walvoord and Dwight Pentecost, um, uh, Gene Getz, these men wrote tremendous tremendous quantities of material that are still available today thousands and thousands of pages and these were not just crazy you know dispensationalists gathered with a flashlight and a candle and and a bunch of propane burners we're here for the end of the world you know that's these are theological giants that have written well and their work still stands scrutiny today so we owe a debt of gratitude to the, to them um <clears throat> I, I don't subscribe to the idea that if something was written after the year 1650 that I can't believe it. I, I love the fact that 1 Timothy 4.15 is like my, one of my favorite verses as a pastor says, let your progress be made known to all. What does that mean? It means that as a church we have grown in our knowledge of scripture and we ought to take advantage of that. Um, so, there it is. The premillennial view.